Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series brought to you by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of banking and financial services. As always, I'm your host, Michael Avery. And in this series, we are really helping the professionals, the banking professionals, the financial service professionals, but also the financial enthusiasts or someone who simply just wants to stay informed about the world of finance. So if that's you, you've certainly come to the right place. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. And today we're talking about something that often I think gets lost or slips through the cracks when we talk about regulation in financial services. And I know most people's eyes glaze over when you talk about regulation. But if you allow me just to introduce the topic, global income inequality has fallen across the board in the past two decades, in large part due to major strides in emerging market and developing economies to raise economic growth rates and reduce poverty. And if you look at it, financial sector policies and advances in things like financial technology or fintech, as we call it, are really enabling things like financial inclusion, particularly in large economies. Think China and India. I think they account for a, and accord for a large chunk of that positive improvement. But at the same time, we also observe rising or high disparities in income and wealth within many countries, a rising inequality. I was looking at new data from the IMF that shows that economic mobility, that's the ability of the less well-off to improve their economic status, has stalled in recent decades. No wonder then that inequality of income, wealth and opportunities is giving rise to populism and anti-globalization sentiments all around the world. So the big question, I guess, is can the financial sector play a role in reducing inequality. And what is that role? What is the role of the regulators in this question as well? Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome my next guest, who is dedicating much of her her latter academic career to this question, Anne Cabot-Alitazo, whom I first met while she was working at then Alexander Forbes, now Alex Forbes, and is now adjunct faculty practice director and co-founder of the Responsible Finance Initiative at the Gordon Institute of Business Sciences at the University of Pretoria at Gibbs. And Anne, I just think with that title, Responsible Finance, it pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Great pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Wow, I was wondering where you were going to go with that introduction. I thought, oh my goodness, are we going to be talking about how wonderful the industry has done in terms of including, you know, increasing financial inclusion? I thought, that's not the problem we need to address. <laughs> You hit the nail right on the head when you switched the conversation around and got to the whole issue of uh, inequality. And, you know, it's, it's an absolute fascination. You may have only met me a few years ago, Alex Forbes, but this is something that I've been actually monitoring and watching for the last 50 years of my life. I actually started out in life as a development anthropologist, but um, that <laughs> that wasn't to be because when I got to Japan, they were fairly interested in the fact that most of their income as a consulting firm in development anthropology space was coming from the U.S. And the question they wanted to ask at the end of the 1970s was, if the markets are in decline, how do we preserve the capital that we're earning here in U.S. dollars? So I got sent to the U.S. and I got told either manage this money until you find somebody to manage it or figure out what do we do here? Find somebody to do it. And that gave me an opportunity to see absolutely everything right from the Mm -hmm. starting point in terms of the dark underbelly of the industry. I mean, I had to manage the money over the next two years, but 
I was also going around and interviewing absolutely every single sort of player in that space. And I was astonished at information asymmetry between the asset management industry and their clients. And that really got me going on the road to, you know, how do we actually look at a industry which is theoretically holding professionals and professionals are people who operate on your behalf and yet now are sitting in the position of being a business and therefore you have this major conflict um, principal agency conflict yeah major 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 and i think the industry and this is back in the late 1970s i mean that's sort of wall street wolf on wall street sort of era gordon gecko <laughs> yeah greed is good yeah dwarf hurling contest <laughs> does exist it did exist led me to my very first job full-time job in this industry which was in japan where i had my first boss who i spent four hours over lunch a japanese individual who had no english and i had no japanese but we had a translator as our host and i explained to him if there was some way the industry could somehow align themselves with their clients would this not make much more business sense and he then sent me all over the world to sort of look at different financial service models so i i can argue pretty convincingly that i have seen what is out there and i have made a career on trying to help people understand that if we keep going the way we are we're going to have what has actually unfolded in the US which is the US has gone over the last 40 years from being in a fairly convincing meritocracy to one where you have just massive inequality mm. and that inequality you can trace right back to the role that the financial you know big finance has played i'm going to say mm. big mm. finance mm. rather than financial services industry it's big finance what do you mean what do you mean by big finance maybe Maybe let's just unpack what you mean by big finance before we go into this question of of big finance as as a catalyst for inequality through what you've seen. Okay, so so maybe the best way to talk about that is to ask the question how how did finance reshape the economy? And I'm working here with some incredibly good research that Ken Haolin and and Megan Neely did just a couple of years ago, in which they they able to go back over the last 40 years and really document exactly what was going on and what they discovered is that what happens is that the financial sector kind of extracts resources at large without providing the sort of commensurate benefits to the to anybody outside of the industry obviously if you work in the industry you get paid very well uh, you know the financial services industry in south africa is one of the best tax payers that we have so yeah. you know disturb signs should be on their business models but the reality is it's what um we have what Mariana Mazzucato has called an extractive financial world in other words finance is absolutely the catalyst for social mobility but much of it within the business model is what we call extractive finance in other words it doesn't necessarily contribute to social mobility it contributes to you know revenues for the industry and the problem with that information asymmetry is that the poor consumer doesn't know the difference between whether what they're doing is going to add to their social mobility and social protection or whether it's simply an extractive solution so for example the industry is very clever at sort of 
exploiting people's areas of fear, like, oh, downside risk. Let me give you a structured product where you have absolutely no downside. But by the way, I'm going to charge 600 basis points for that product, you know, that type of thing. So you have very little sense of what is the true cost benefit of what am I investing in? And how will that affect me 10 years down the road, one year down the road, 50 years down the road? But the other area that was happening in the U.S., and it's starting to happen here in South Africa, is that other firms in other sectors realize that being involved in finance also is massively lucrative. So look at our retail sector. And they become increasingly involved in lending and speculative investing. And what that does is that it kind of weakens the demand for labor and it weakens the bargaining power for workers. But probably the most important thing that's happening out there, and this is absolutely what is happening in South Africa, and that's the third dimension, and that is it shifts the risks and uncertainties from finance that were once shouldered by corporations and governments and unions to the worker, to the person, the laborer who's earning an income. And what happens is that that actually ends up escalating their consumption of financial products, and that exacerbates inequality, okay? Because we go back to the beginning again, and people can't determine what's in their interest to save and what isn't in their interest to save, their interest to buy, sorry, and what's not in their interest to buy. Exactly. And I mean, one example is also just the, the approach to credit extension versus incentivizing better financial behavior through the correct saving and investment choices that we make and how the industry is skewed towards the much more profitable credit side of the equation. Now, financial services and big finance in that kind of broad bucket might retort and that this is perhaps a a necessary side effect of offering increased services to a less educated portion of the market yeah. and say, well, all we're doing is broadening financial inclusion. That, that's often what you hear. Yeah, yeah, why, doesn't exactly. that, why doesn't that wash with you? Why, why isn't the financial inclusion aspect of this as important well, I, I as many make it out to be? Yeah. You've actually pinpointed exactly the problem. And don't think that government wasn't inadvertently complicit in this, maybe not, not inadvertently, unwittingly complicit in this. And I I say that because the minute South Africa achieved full democracy, one of the top priorities was to try to mobilize a middle classification of the black community. In other words, how do we move this electorate, potential electorate, into the middle class and therefore allow them to continue to vote for us? And the response was to simply open the floodgates on credit back in the early, early right, after, yeah. right, right after 1994. And, um, you know, that that's where you would go to the ATM and, and you try to get some money out. And suddenly this sign would flash up saying, do you need money? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you idiot. I'm at the ATM because I just want to look at your machine, you know, but and, and all sorts of offering of credit, even if, you know, people didn't need credit at ridiculous terms. And don't forget that when we when we first had credit here, credit monitoring and the whole credit act sat under the DTI, not with the FSCA. So protecting 
the creditors was far more important than protecting the consumers. And so that sort of led to a whole sort of snowballing effect to what we have now, which is an uneducated mass that is sitting there saying, what now? What do, what do I do now? Because what, so, you know, let, let's look at some things that the regulator didn't do. Okay. So this yeah. is nothing to do with the regulator, but actually sort of transpired in South Africa that really sort of exacerbated the problem. And you've got maybe four different things to look at. You've got the fact that government de facto outsourced social security other than, you know, the, the grants to people that, you know, were unemployed and, and below a th- certain income threshold, but they outsourced the provision of social security to private sector, to the financial services industry. So you have a, a be deemed a public or a common good being managed by the private sector. Um, you have also at the same time the demutualization going on of all the big life companies, which actually ends up with now a whole bunch of listed financial services where they're now split between, okay, I have to earn an income that I share with my shareholders. What do I take from the people whose money I'm actually managing? So you've been hired to manage someone else's money. You're making money from that and you're taking the spoils of that and splitting it not back to that person and yourself who did it, but also with a third party, which is your sta- your shareholders. Um, the third thing that happened, of course, is what I alluded to before, which is the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution. And that whole shift takes the risk of managing your pension assets, not managing your pension assets, managing the outcomes um, onto the shoulder of the member. So you don't get a guaranteed annuity when you retire anymore. You get whatever the market bore. And you as a laborer or a worker, that's not your area of expertise. And you're sort of at the mercy of, you know, whatever the industry has to offer in there. But probably the fourth and most disturbing aspect is the fact that we never properly developed a professional financial planning industry. We we conflated financial planning with financial advice, which was all about, you know, selling products to fund the model of remuneration to the advisor. And that meant that there's absolutely no way you could move beyond the high net worth individuals in terms of a model that would offer what is absolutely essential financial planning advice, not advice, sorry, financial planning to the masses. Mm. And that has absolutely nothing to do with product. It so we never built the financial model, a business model, yeah. to allow that to happen. It was always about where am I going to get the most profit rather than where does this common good of financial you know, support? And don't tell me financial literacy because that's not the answer. <laughs> it's an ongoing support system. Where does that sit? So that's yeah, me yeah. ranting. No, well, I mean. I think we can touch on all four of those key areas uh, which have underpinned the outcome that we see today. If you just look at the the latest debt statistics in South Africa, I was interviewing, I think it was TransUnion on my radio show, one of the big uh, credit bureaus, and just the number of South Africans who are heavily or highly indebted is truly frightening. And back to your earlier point of government outsourcing social security to the financial sector, these are the outcomes when when we see this kind of approach taken. I want to focus, though, and, and maybe hone in on how 
regulations potentially and and you said there was a regulatory blind spot in the past of the regulators um, that allowed this to happen but how regulation has tried to catch up because we've seen iterations of you know that we had the national credit act that was amended that did away with certain usurious interest rate practices uh, we've had the retail distribution review rdr we're having changes no, no. to our pension system through a model that now seeks to provide default nudges and is really shining a light on the cost in the industry that was first started by david mccarthy so it's not as if the regulators are blind to these issues no no not at all not at all the regulators are trying as hard as they can but you know i think the public needs to appreciate the fact that you know short of completely reconfiguring the whole model which we're tremendously proud of because it's identical to a first world model and <laughs> yet it doesn't fit the you know the needs of the south african and certainly not the south african uh, consumer post 1994 so if we go back um Oh, brother, this is such a big topic here. <laughs> you know, you have to ask the question that when you've suddenly become a full-blown democracy, but you've had 80% of your population that haven't been able to have access to asset ownership, and so you don't have multi-generational asset transfer, is the best starting point for them to have pension fund, which they only have access to when they're 60, 65. Now, if you look at pension fund indices around the world, and you know how Mercer CFA has this annual global pension fund index that they do, you have to ask the question, why is it the Scandinavian countries are always at the top of that league board? And why is South Africa way down below? And if you look at it, you have to you know, widen your lens and recognize saving for a pension fund is just one of the many pillars of keeping your society stable. I mean, the SDGs are a good example of what it takes to keep a society stable. But the Scandinavian countries, things like education, things like healthcare, things like housing, things like um, security are all things that government makes sure that they are taken care of. So when you add on a pension fund, that's just a nice add-on that everybody is perfectly happy to People in Scandinavia are perfectly happy to pay their taxes because they get all this coverage. But in South Africa, even though South Africa pays probably more than any other African country for education, for yeah, healthcare yeah. and security and all of those things, obviously because of what's transpired over the last 20 years, that hasn't gone to the consumer, which means that the only thing they have to turn to now to help them is that retirement savings, which they can't access until they turn 60, 65, or whenever they retire. So you have to pull the lens back and look at, whereas what we do from a regulatory point of view is that the people responsible for pension funds sit there and just fiddle around on the fringes with trying to change pension fund regulations to make sure that people keep their pension funds so that the you know, there is money at the end, but that doesn't solve the problem of people during their journey. Yeah, those are, I mean, those are largely in the purview of failing state services and the social contracts Absolutely. to deliver quality, constitutionally enshrined quality healthcare, education. Absolutely. Uh, these are big challenges. You, you laughed and said this is a big topic, but I mean, even if you look at the US, there is a big question mark around the unfunded liability in the US. And 
a debate that seems to be kicked to touch whether you're a Republican or Democrat yeah. time and time again. And it's largely as a result of Medicare and other benefits that even in the US they're grappling with. We're talking about an economy with almost full employment that well, you know was growing at 5% in the last quarter is a, is a world leader. So in terms of models, you mentioned the Scandinavian model. I, is- I mentioned it quite deliberately because... Yeah. They are social democracies, not socialists, not pure democracies. They're social democracies, democracy that works for the society. And the problem with the U.S., and I may sound terribly American here with my accent, but probably not remotely in spirit, is that big business dominates everything. So if we haven't gotten anywhere with the pensions, Social Security, if we haven't gotten anywhere with health care, if we haven't gotten anywhere with a whole lot of social services, it's because big business has really dominated the conversations. I mean, what was I reading yesterday? Yesterday I was reading about a massive pushback against Biden, and I'm not a political fan of Biden either, but about Biden's plan to create more transparencies in contracts. And and he simply said, listen, no more T's and C's and fine print at the bottom. You've got to be able to display to people who buy airline tickets, to people who buy all sorts of services, what is the bottom line cost? What are you protected for? What are you not protected for? And what happens? Across the board, every single industry pushed back on that proposal. So, you know, you have the so-called let the market do its work is not working. So if that sounds anti-capitalist, I don't mean to be that way, but something's got to give. Something's got to give. And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm not talking mm. about communism. I'm talking about yeah. common good. Yeah. I was actually having this conversation with the the authors of a new book called was re-released and called Inequality, but the pre the previous title here in South Africa was The Age of Menace. And just tracing this rising global populism and this pushback yeah. against what has been globalization system of global trade and global economic growth that has lifted a large chunk, largely in China and to a certain extent in India, out of agrarian poverty and into the, the lower middle classes and, and the, the kind of middle to, to upper middle classes. And why, why are we seeing this pushback? And it's because there is this tendency towards concentrations of wealth within countries yes. that I mentioned yeah. in my introduction. There are many factors. It's a, a multifactorial issue. I think Thomas Piketty was one yeah, who yeah. really tried to understand it. You know, um, R is greater than G. Some yeah. of his critics, though, yeah. say that he's fallen into the same kind of pedological trap as Marx in claiming to have unearthed new historical economic laws, perpetually worsening global inequality. But, you know, these things are not necessarily anything new. It's that we're grappling with them in a different way today in a very global manner. Given this, I mean, given that the market does tend to benefit, especially when it comes to technology, first entrants, first movers, there there is a return to size and scale. We've just got to see that with the Magnificent Seven on the S&P 500 this year. And uh, what's happened to the other 493-odd companies? Well, if you're big, your ability to grow is uh, is is alarming for antitrust authorities for competition authorities all over the world they they're grappling with this question it's our new railways question what can the regulators do because our regulators here in south africa do seem to be under-resourced and undercapacitated to be able to well, deal it's getting, 
collapsed and it's getting worse. I mean, I was just talking to someone from the FSC today, uh, yesterday, and we were talking about, again, this whole thing of, I guess, the study that has come out from, you know, the whole uh, FAFTA stuff. Is, am I using the right word here? You know what I mean? The uh, FASIF. FASIF, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know how to say that word <laughs> in one fell <laughs> swoop. But anyway, the whole discussion around gray list and what they've identified is not that South Africa doesn't have good regulations. It's just that they can't police the damn things. And now, as I was saying, the FSCA was just telling me it was that it used to be around things like fraud or any kind of penalties that they would invoke on the industry, that that money would go in back FSCA in terms of creating better education, be it better, more transparency, doing all the stuff, good stuff that the FSCA does. But now that's going back directly to National Treasury. So I'm thinking, oh, hell, you know, <laughs> now what? <laughs> because a lot of going forward is going to depend upon the industry trying to, to, to push the right buttons. And absolutely everybody across the board, because of these latest budget constraints, is getting hammered, whether it be Policing and financial services are just policing. <laughs> well, and I think broadly speaking, you know, financial services are highly regulated. You've got you've got Basel for banks. You've got RDR, yeah. which we've touched on. We, Kofi, FSR, Twin Peaks, all of that. So, given that, do you think we're just releasing too much regulation and not focusing enough on you know what is it well, for? What are the impacts? Is it being effective, or are we just being measured as MPs about you know how many bills can we introduce every year? Yeah. So what you talk about is something that actually is a given, and I can't remember where it's a given. I was reading an article that Robert Sconey wrote that it said it's embedded in our whatever <laughs> regulatory framework that when you introduce a regulation, that there's something called an RIA associated for it, which yeah. is basically a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, if I introduce this regulation, do I know ex ante, whether or not I'm likely to have a better outcome and it's going to be worth the cost of, of introducing it. And his argument is that we, you know, the FSCA just doesn't have the resources to do that sort of analysis. Now, someone from the FSCA can call me and tell me I'm full of crap, which they're entitled to because I'm just reading this article. But I do think that that's probably, I mean, it's something that I've talked to them about, particularly around the work that they want to do around sustainability. And I'm not just talking about the FSCA, I'm talking about the entire financial services industry about this whole stuff with you know, sustainability. So now that sounds like I'm just contradicting myself that I should be circumspect about the sustainability push. But mm. we every single week, because this is what I do at Gibbs, is try to look at to what extent do the actions in the financial services sector translate into any kind of impact or any kind of what is required, which is systems change? I mean, let's take this whole climate discussion. Yeah. It is absolutely paramount that if we get it right. Well, let's look at bang for buck. And the bang for buck is unless we get U.S. and China on board to do something, all this other peripheral stuff is really does diddly squat, sorry, because those are the big problem areas. So you have to kind of as I say, your big problem with regulations is that if you don't pull the lens out far enough and wide enough, you don't have the ability to understand what are the knock-on consequences. 
to do all this fiddling around with the pension fund to try to make people stay in the pension funds, but you haven't solved the other problems, which is what do you do about the journey? Now, if you have a two-part system that says, okay, you've got to have some access, and this goes back, by the way, to my first conversations with David McCarthy 10 years ago, let's do something. And we were both looking at the Singapore model, and David had done some of his, graduate, his, his doctoral work on the Singapore model, which takes into account that people, uh, you should take people's savings and allow them to determine what aspect of their lives needs needs support does it need is it health is it education is it you know your grandparents is it your children is it you know where where in the in your lens of responsibility does that money need to boost your your well-being uh you know we we try to sort of introduce this stuff and the best we could do was to consider the emergency savings as a starting point so that's what led us down this way but at that time 10 years ago the argument was nobody could administer this because pension funds administer for the individual. They, inter, you know, they administer for the whole fund. So the idea was never to simply open up the floodgates and have the money just go out the door. The idea was if, if you introduce emergency savings as yet another consideration for the income earner, then if they have to pull that trigger, that's when they should be talking to that that fund approved financial advisor, financial planner, not advisor, planner. So, and we've seen something know. like the retirement benefits counselor to give effect to that. Yes. Someone who is neutral, independent, doesn't have a principal agent conflict baked yep. into the, the way they approach this. And yet, I suppose it's still very early days. I'm not seeing any broad uh, improvement. And one would hope that in the next few years, we we have empirical research to to say, right, we've introduced these retirement fund reforms from defaults to two-pot and and the like. And, you know, are we actually having the desired impact? You still have in the financial services industry a massive division between people who service the institutional client and people who service the retail client. And those people have totally different compensation models. And until you can basically bring those two factors together, because it's that, that financial planner who's going to help that poor guy who's in, you know, from day one, from the moment he first earns that paycheck, and whenever he's in crisis or whenever he needs some other sort of advice on what to what to do, there's somebody he can start turning to. And I, and yet, and I've often argued that the real problem is that we talk in terms of umbrella pension funds. Why are we not talking in terms of umbrella employee benefit funds where you can pass on the economies of scale to the individual? And I've done the calculation or I did the calculation about 10 years ago. And we discovered that if you did that, you could reduce the cost of that coverage for that individual of all of those different elements by half. So we're trying to solve for buying a home and educating your children and getting, you know, life insurance or risk insurance and, and healthcare. Yeah. That would probably consume 80% of your income if you did that with a salary of say 35,000 a year, which is our median income here. Wow. But if you did it on an institutional basis with those fees on an institutional level, it would cost 40% of your income. 
So Remarkable. where is the industry in terms of trying to capture that market and in trying to provide that resource? I mean, that would make a huge difference for South Africa if we could do that. But your problem is you're looking at industries that are effectively factories. They've invested a lot of money in creating the models and the systems that they have. And you're basically telling the entire industry, we're no longer going to be a petrol-based engine. We're going to be electric-based engine. So go retool your factories. Last question, Anne. It's been fascinating. Uh, where do we need to be focusing our attention, broadly speaking, as society, as, as the regulators, to apply the pressure that we need to change the broader financial services industry so it better services the needs of South Africans, given the constraints that we have in South Africa of a largely failing state that can't provide decent public health care security, education, all of those things, and in an economy that is largely ex-growth and, and not creating new jobs to create pools for these schemes to have real sustainability, it, it almost seems like an insoluble problem. No, let, let's just put this out here. The regulator is not the problem. The regulator is doing everything in their damnedest to try to understand the problem. And I have a lot of faith in some of the new people that have been brought into the regulator that understand that, I mean, I was listening to Farzana Badat the other day speaking at the FBI conference, and she was sort of basically saying, you know, the regulatory role has changed dramatically in the last literally five years, that while regulators used to just sort of take their marching orders from the policymakers, and then they just made sure that they did whatever you know the policymaker said, um, you realize you have to get out of as such, they were always 10 years behind where the industry was, you know. So the industry was always one step ahead. And the industry was always finding ways to get in there and be extractive. But she said now the regulator needs to be anticipatory and get out there and be, you know, thinking ahead of the game. The problem that you have is that on one hand, we need regulations that are appropriate to South Africa. But on the other hand, if we're not, part of the global community, particularly around things like crypto assets and any kind of cross-border transfers and what have you, you know, then we get what we got just now, this gray listing problem. I was listening to the politicians, and I won't name which ones, talking about how the Western financial system has us in their grip. And yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. But pay attention to the ones that are important to South Africa. And yeah. that is, yeah. you know, our, our vulnerability here yeah. in terms yeah. of uh, cash flows. And, yeah. and, and also, you know, it's a rules-based system for a reason because ultimately, you know, the FATF was set up to counter terrorist financing and the proliferation of terrorism and, and nuclear weapons yeah. and organized crime at that scale and level. And anyone who argues against those rules is effectively arguing for a system of anarchy where we as a society implicitly approve of, of such behavior and actions. And so I'm always very cynical and skeptical about uh, calls to move away from that kind of rules-based system where we see, for example, the BRICS New Development Bank and Dilma Rousseff as the CEO, the former head of Brazil, saying we won't have quite as many conditions, in not so many words, as yep. we, we currently have yep. in the current <laughs> rules-based system. So, and One last point. Yeah. And I was sitting there listening to Zondo at Gibbs the other day. And he was saying, you know, when I was doing this work before on the Zonda Commission, 
We were worried about state capture. Right now we have a different thing. Now we have to work about criminal syndicate capture. Great point. Anne Capitalitauser, adjunct faculty practice director and co-founder of the Responsible Finance Initiative at the Gordon Institute of Business Sciences at the University of Pretoria Gibbs, giving us fantastic high-level view of the big question around regulation in society where we do see big finance is allowed to extract as much as it uh, really feels like and ideally regulations should stay ahead of the industry it should be sort of a guiding light but more typically we see often it arising to correct some problem that the industry hasn't seen fit to correct or is reactive very interesting conversation and that wraps up this week's episode of the monocle banking podcast you can find us on all good podcast platforms and remember you can reach out to me on twitter at badger and uh, email the team at monocle for ideas inputs and suggestions for future shows thank you for tuning in and until next time don't forget to subscribe to the monocle banking podcast